0: This is what a movie score is supposed to fucking be. This is what a movie score is supposed to fucking be! This is what a movie score is supposed to fucking be.
2: Welcome to the Glenn Butler Podcast, Our Spectacular, where we have both first and last names on our world. I am Glenn Butler, and hopefully you enjoyed listening to our episode on the 2009 Star Trek movie, the one that I like to joyfully call Star Trek 11. This episode is going to be about the score for that movie, which we decided, since we were going a little long, we would split out into its own show. And this may be kind of an extended discussion of its own, because we are going to have a lot to say about this one, aren't we, Scott? Scott's here, too, by the way. Say hello, Scott. Hi. All right, let's get into it. Now let's talk a little bit about the score for this movie, uh, composed by Michael G. Kino, who was an obvious pick to do this because of his associations, and very welcome. Uh, Giacchino is a composer who got his start in the late 90s in video games. Part of the first generation of film and TV composers who did get started in video games, because it was only in the late 90s that video games started getting orchestral scores, and original scores in a lot of cases. He started on the Small Soldiers and Lost World video games, eventually did the first several Medal of Honor games, which is where he first got a little notoriety. It's where I first heard of him, at least. And then he got hooked up with J.J. Abrams to do his TV show, Alias. And then J.J. brought him with him when he started Lost. And Lost, really, was Giacchino's great masterpiece. There is so much awesome music from that show, and a lot of it is written with such thought put into it and subtlety, with a limited number of instruments, too. There's just a fantastic variety of music there, and that really got him some acclaim. Uh, he had started moving into movies a little bit. He did The Incredibles, he did Ratatouille, and he still does animation to this day. In 2009, actually, he also did Up, for which he won the Oscar the next year. And so, for him to make the jump into Star Trek with J.J. Abrams was obvious. And a lot of people were really looking forward to what he would create because of the thematic complexity that he had on Lost. He had shown himself as someone who could write strong themes and put them through lots of different variations. Which is something that, in action films, had been decreasing a little. A little? Uh, yeah. More than a little in a lot of cases. So there were progressively fewer and fewer composers who could reliably turn in orchestral thematic scores for blockbuster movies.
0: I feel like we need to do like one of those internet memes of a Google suggestion. Oh, did you mean every criticism I made of the last three
2: Star Trek film scores? Sure, except one of the complaints in a great many film music communities has been that there aren't people who can reliably turn in orchestral thematic scores for action movies since around the time Jerry Goldsmith died. Well, that's true. Although I would back it up about ten years before Jerry Goldsmith died. Ten years before Jerry Goldsmith died, you were still regularly getting, like, great scores for action movies which might or might not have been great
0: okay maybe maybe you're right maybe i'm exaggerating maybe it's more like six or seven years before jerry goldsmith died
2: but by 2009 a lot of movies and especially a lot of action movies had been heavily heavily influenced by the hans zimmer style especially the batman movies Uh, Dark Knight came out in 08, right? So there had already been two big, big, mammothly, monumentally popular and successful big budget action movies with monumentally successful scores and popular scores that were the exact antithesis, in many ways, of what Giacchino is doing here on Star Trek. A couple days ago, I went and looked up one of the trailers for this movie. Because obviously I'd seen the trailer a lot in 2009, but I didn't remember it that well. And the trailer that I looked up was tracked significantly with The Dark Knight.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, didn't the trailer for this movie use the Zimmer Batman music? The the two-note theme.
2: I have seen people writing about greater complexity in those scores, but I don't get it. So, the trailers had a lot of Zimmer, had a lot of The Dark Knight, had a lot of the sort of wailing woman vocal effect that became cliched in film music. Also with Zimmer on Gladiator, most significantly, and was used a whole lot for the next five, six, seven years. But with Star Trek, you have kind of a return to, again, an orchestral thematic milieu for a big-budget sci-fi movie. It's not a big return for Star Trek, because Star Trek has always had big, bold themes, no matter what you think of the late stage of Jerry Goldsmith's career. Yeah, Star Trek, when it was good, always had big, bold themes. Even his later scores, you might not like the themes as much, but they're definitely there. We just went over how in
0: Nemesis there was one theme. And, you know, a snippet of the motion picture theme used three or four times. But generally one theme in the entire film. And whatever you want to say about the themes in Insurrection, they are neither big nor
2: bold. Those are discussions for those movies' respective podcasts. But regardless, in the tradition of Star Trek, of having a a big, bold Brassy main theme. Gikino comes in and, like you said at the beginning of the show, introduces his main theme immediately and makes it almost the backbone of the opening Kelvin sequence. I mean, he's already putting it through a bunch of different variations, even in the first 10 minutes of the movie. Yes. We
0: went through the entire Nemesis score and talked about how he only wrote one theme for that score. In this one movie, Gikino writes a main theme. An Enterprise theme, a Spock
2: theme, an Enemy theme. There are some smaller uh, themes or motifs as well that are used to lead into the main theme or sometimes to lead into or out of Spock's theme, uh, used in Counterpoint. There's also sort of a secondary Romulan theme aside from the Nero theme, but that gets a little subtle. I'm just saying, this movie introduces
0: themes almost as rapidly as it introduces new uniforms. <laughs> and it is a stark contrast to the last three Goldsmith scores. Both in the number of themes and in the use of them. The repeated use of them, the extended use of them, the development of the themes, the variations on the themes. All of this is a stark departure from the dreck Goldsmith has been doing for the last two movies. And even to an extent the last three movies, this is what
2: a movie score is supposed to fucking be. See, I thought that this one would be a lot less contentious because we both really like this score. But no, we're still arguing about Jerry Goldsmith.
0: (laughs) As somebody who grew up with Superman and Star Wars, this is what a movie score is supposed to fucking be. You have several themes, they mean different things, they are used when that thing occurs. There's variations on them depending on the emotion of the scene or, you know, what else is happening around it. The themes are used in conjunction with each other, they're developed in different directions. They're used for more than 20 seconds at a time. This is what a movie score is supposed to fucking be. Well, there's
2: the subtitle for this section of the show. <laughs> I remember some people noting at the time that this movie first came out, and the time that the score first came out, and discussions about it had started, that they believed that this was the first time that the main theme for the movie was so personally identified with Kirk as a character. Since then, all of the expanded scores have come out, and the notes for many of them identify, like, Horner's main theme from two and three as Kirk's theme as well. But the main theme in this movie really does kind of track with Kirk. It's that theme that is used when he's riding on his motorcycle and he sees the Enterprise. And it's that theme that carries the sense of destiny or coming of age or whatever you want to intuit into that scene. It's that theme that is used for a lot of the heroics that he commits. It's that theme that's used closely aligned with him in the action scenes throughout the movie. In fact, if I recall correctly, after the very beginning of the movie, the logos when the main theme is read out on a on a solo horn, the first time it actually comes in in the underscore is the first shot of Winona Kirk. Is it? When they're rolling her down the hallway, getting her to the medical shuttle... Oh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember that now, yeah. It kind of bursts in and is used from there for the Kirks generally through that scene before it kind of tracks more closely with Jim Kirk.
0: I was trying to remember if the Labor of Love track was a variation on the theme or if it was just its own thing.
2: Uh, Labor of Love, I think, is its own thing because that's reprised a little at the end of the movie. Remember I first tried to tell you about that and your response was what? So it's the collision course theme? Huh? When Spock is is piloting the jellyfish into the Narada at the end of the movie. He's liverful of there? Sort of. So what, it's the collision course theme? Oh my god. <laughs> now also introduced in that opening Kelvin sequence of course is Nero's theme which much like Nero's character is a lot less complex or interesting.
0: <laughs> I like that theme though. It's I don't know, if it's almost too short to call it a theme, but it it works for the enemy, you know? It works as just like a signifier of the enemy. It's like, it's like the short version of the Imperial March where they only play like the first 6 or 8 notes. It's, you know,
2: this loud blare that lets you know, here's the enemy. One of the things that I thought was neat about the Romulan music in that opening sequence was during the scene with Captain Robau on the Narada, they use the uh, Erhu, which is a special instrument that Giacchino brought in to use for the Vulcan music and more specifically Spock's theme, but it's also used a couple of times for the Romulans. In that opening sequence, when Captain Robau is talking to Ayal and Nero, it's sort of synthetically augmented, so it sounds a little more off from the more natural setting that it appears in for the Vulcan music. Hmm. And also later in the movie, when Nero is torturing Pike, the instrument comes back. It's not augmented, but it is actually playing Nero's theme.
0: Yeah, I noticed that. When i not paying attention this last time we watched it, it's a, one of the very, very few times in the movie where they play that theme, and it's not the loud, blaring version. It's much more quiet and subdued. I thought that was a very
2: interesting use. Right, right. In its more typical arrangement, it's on the brass, and it is big and imposing, and that's about it. Which fits the Romulans, because their ship is big and imposing. Sure, And then at the end of the Kelvin sequence is the track Labor of Love, which is almost ballaic in a way. When the sound effects and everything drop away and you're just hearing the music, it's a little more of a lilting melody. Um, There is a lot of bombast in this score because it accompanies this movie. But that track and a couple others show how Giacchino really shines with the big emotional stuff, too. Now, I'm not gonna want to go track by track and scene by scene through this whole thing, because every now and then we try to make a concession to listenability. It might not seem that way, but we do. But this movie, instead of a full main title sequence, has the title card that you so aptly described earlier with the first really big, bombastic arrangement of that main theme, which, in the movie version, is actually a cut-down segment of the Enterprising Young Men track, which covers the later scene where Kirk and McCoy are taking the shuttle to the Enterprise and we get our brief look at the new ship. Um, Why do you call it brief?
0: They fly by and you get a
2: nice look at the new ship. It's, It's the big reveal. I think I would have preferred a sequence introducing the new Enterprise between the length of this and the sequence from the motion picture. That would be a little much to stop the movie for five or six minutes and just introduce all the angles of the new Enterprise, but I think what I wanted in that scene was to get a look at more of the ship, more angles of it, more approaches to it.
0: I don't know, you see it sort of from the sort of front corner side, so you get a nice view of the whole thing. And then they fly over the saucer, and so you get a nice look at the saucer and name and the registry number and everything. And then they fly around the other side, and you get a shot from there. And then they fly around to
2: the shuttle bay, and so you get a shot of the ship from behind. I think they do a pretty good job. I don't think there are quite enough shots of the entire ship. Like, you get a shot of the name and registry number, but it's kind of cut off because it's a much closer shot of the ship. I would have liked to get more of a proper introduction that this is the new Enterprise. And I think in terms of the score that that's somewhere that G. Kino could have excelled. As indeed, the, the score for that scene is just two, two and a half minutes straight of the main theme, saying this is our main theme, this is our starship, this is how we're putting this movie together.
0: Yeah, you keep using could have where I would use did. We did get some nice looks at the ship, and Giacchino's score was great during that sequence of showcasing the ship and showcasing the theme. It was. I just kind of wish that scene had been longer. I don't think it needed to be longer than it was.
2: But anyway, they used a cut-down piece of that track for the main title to have that sort of bombastic introduction of the main theme after it had been used a couple of times in the opening sequence to have that identifier, that this is our title and this is our theme and and again, this is how we're putting this movie together. But there were, of course, several alternative main titles. The original main title that Giacchino wrote wound up being used when Kirk and McCoy take off on the shuttle to the Academy from the shipyards in Iowa. Which is why that track has the Alexander Courage fanfare from the original series at the tail end of it.
0: Wow, that would have been nowhere near as good.
2: Well, the idea for that was just to have that little bit of the old Star Trek fanfare over the title. It's much better where it is. There was another alternate main title that was put on the Deluxe Edition expansion of the score in the place in sequence on the CD, as if it had been placed in that scene of Kirk taking off on the shuttle to the Academy. The the way that the score was handled on album is a little complicated. (laughs) Yeah, you just totally lost me. Okay. There's another alternate main title, which was not on the original CD release. It was on the deluxe edition. The original main title I just described is not on either. It has not been officially released. But you just said it was used in the later scene. It was used in that scene, yes. And yet when they released the complete score, they didn't release that piece of music that's used in that scene. The Deluxe Edition isn't quite the complete score. And so, in the place in sequence on the Deluxe Edition, where that original main title would have gone, to cover the scene of Kirk and McCoy taking off to the Academy, there's a track called The Flask at Hand, Which, if you're getting the sense that Gikino's track titles are all puns, you're just about right. Because McCoy's flask is the most important part of that scene. And that track uses a couple of the smaller motifs that are used to introduce the main theme before a very short quotation of that theme. I agree that they pretty much got it right in the way that they did it. I I like the little bit of enterprising young men put in over the real main title, and the alternate main title, the original main title, is just as well where it is in the actual movie. Since I mentioned it, do you want to say something about Giacchino's track titles? What is there to say? Well, there are people who love them, there are people who hate them. Hate, hate, hate. And there are people who are indifferent. I guess I would be
0: mostly indifferent.
2: I'm mostly indifferent too, but I kind of appreciate the work of somebody who is always desperately trying to entertain himself, as I am. The problem is that most of them are awful. Oh, they're very
0: bad puns. On each CD, there's like maybe one or two tracks where the title is actually sort of amusing and sort of clever. The rest of them are just stupid and may as well be called track five. There are a few that are difficult to decipher at first. That's true. Like the track where they all do the space jump is called Jehusaphats. That's kind of mildly amusing. On every Gekino CD, there's
2: one or two of those, but mostly they're just useless. You mean you don't enjoy the track Matter? I barely know her. Hangar Management. That's a decent track title. Vulcan gets
0: a good drilling. If you're you're gonna go for the punny track titles, Hangar Management is a good one. Most of them are just useless. And even Giacchino gives up on some of them, because some of the tracks don't even have the stupid punny titles.
2: Well, some of the tracks have standard soundtrack titles that just, like, refer to a line from the scene and that's it. Yeah. You know, I, I mentioned the... Labor of Love track as one of the less action-oriented, more emotional tracks. There's also An Endangered Species under Spock's log entry after the destruction of Vulcan, which kind of showcases Spock's theme in a more emotional setting. Let's talk a little bit about Spock's theme, actually. What do you think about Spock's theme as Giacchino conceives of it here in contrast to some of the previous themes for Spock? Horners from 2 and 3, Idelman's from 6, both of which were very similar, had similar takes on the character. And also, there was sort of a Spock theme in 4. There was? Sort of.
0: All I remember from 4 is the main theme and the whale theme. Mm hmm the way G. Kino uses the Spock theme, and it's also basically used for all Vulcan, it's not so much the way the theme is written, but the way he uses it is very sort of ethereal, so it highlights sort of the spiritual nature of the Vulcans. There's a version of it as part of the end title track that's completely different, that transposes it to the main orchestra and plays it in more of a big and bold manner like the rest of the themes, and it's almost like an action-cue version of the Vulcan theme, and it's nearly unrecognizable compared to the way it's used in the main body of the score, where it's almost exclusively on woodwinds, especially that... whichever the
2: fuck you just called it. I didn't think that was the name of it, but whatevs. The Erhu? I may not be pronouncing that correctly, forgive me if not... So the, so the way he uses it very much emphasizes sort of the spiritual
0: nature of the Vulcans and their philosophy and their traditions.
2: My first impression of Spock's theme from this score was that it was much more emotional than any other theme that the character had had. More than the theme from Star Trek III? The way it was used in Star Trek II was very cold, even when he was dying. There were times in the Star Trek Three score that it blossomed into something a little more lyrical, a little more of an elegy at times. But Giacchino's theme, I think, is a lot more emotional on its face. It doesn't really have that cold, removed setting that would seem to be the expected starting place for a Spock theme. Like you say, it's a little more ethereal, it's a little more spiritual. It really falls in line with how this movie conceives of Vulcans, first and foremost, as people who struggle with deep, deep emotion rather than just as people with a cold, logical exterior. Which is usually where your Spock theme would start. That's usually where your take on Spock and your take on Vulcans in general would start.
0: Well, that nicely explains why so many other people play Vulcan characters so badly compared to Spock. True. Now, if you look at Robin Curtis and Kim Cattrall, and look at their attempt at playing Vulcans compared to Zachary Quinto's attempt at playing a Vulcan, it's it's night and day. It's not even comparable.
1: consideration paid for by the following what's up everybody this is kevin kelly make sure you check out every episode of the kevin kelly show right here on the place to be nation placetobenation.com the kevin kelly show every episode is a winner at least we hope Place to Be Nation's Justin Rosero here. In addition to the Kevin Kelly Show, we have a ton of great podcasts available to you on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and PlaceToBeNation.com. And we now offer them to you on two great feeds as well. On the Place to Be podcast feed, you can check out Scott Criscolo and me on the Mothership, the Place to Be podcast, with our famous Vintage Vault pay-per-view reviews. PTBN also covers current-day wrestling with clotheslines and headlines, main event, mission indie possible, in our monthly pay-per-view reaction shows, with immediate feedback on WWE, NXT, and Ring of Honor super shows. Relive Wrestling's past with our monthly pay-per-view rewind series led by Ben Morse and the Dangerous Alliance Wrestling Podcast as we dive into various subjects in the form of exercises and games. We also have sports covered too with the Sports Lounge, the TJ McLoone Show, and NBA Team Podcast. On our brand new PTB Pop Podcast feed, we offer great shows such as the Glenn Butler Podcast, Our Spectacular, Rank and File, Lucha Undead, as well as a veritable podcast heaven for comics fans with the hard-traveling fanboys, Sellers Points, Todd Weber's Conversation, and Imaginary Stories. Subscribe to both feeds on iTunes and be sure to rate and leave feedback as well. All these shows are available on Placemation.com, where we cover pro wrestling, sports, movies, comics, plus tournaments, and more. Be sure to check out on the right-hand side of the site for details on how to support the site when you shop at Amazon and download our free Place to Be Vintage Vault Refresh eBooks, We also want to thank our friends at Bonehead's Wing Bar in West Warwick, Rhode Island, and Fall River, Massachusetts, and Scott Keats' blog, Doom. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr as well. PlacetobeNation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. This is Pav, and I'm here to tell you to listen and subscribe to the pro-wrestling-only Place to Be Nation podcast network. That's the PWO ptbn podcast network where you'll find a ton of in-depth shows done by hardcore fans we've got chris Zelmer's one two punch of exile on bad street and with david bickenspan a smash hit between the sheets we've got wrestling culture with dylan hales and dave musgrave goodwill wrestling and the reaction shows with good old will from texas we got this week in wrestling with my man peace and Johnny Sorrow. Stephen Graham and Tib Livingston's Pro Wrestling Super Show, Tag Teams Back Again with Kelly and Marty Slees, and a ton of other great shows too. And of course, there's Titans of Wrestling and Where the Big Boys Play with yours truly and some dude from down south called Chad. PWO, PTBN, Podcast Network.
2: mentioned the end credits for this movie. One of the distinguishing things about Michael Giacchino is that he is one of a few composers, fewer as time goes on, who actually gets to write end credits pieces for a lot of his scores rather than having them editorially created. Most blockbusters or action movies, a lot of movies, have end credits pieces that are made by taking a few pieces from the score and throwing them in the credits.
0: Well, I guess that's an improvement over ten years ago when most end credits pieces were made by taking a pop song off the soundtrack of songs that had literally nothing to do with the movie other than had the name slapped on the soundtrack
2: CD and throw that over the end credits. Well, that's another way that a lot of end credits are made. If there's a song for the movie, they'll play the song and then paste in a couple pieces from the score and you're good. Remember the end credits from Titanic? (laughs) You know, but even a lot of the Marvel movies, Inception, a lot of big movies with scores that you might expect to come to some sort of fruition at the end of the movie. I think an end credits piece for a score is underrated as part of the musical storytelling of the film. You know, the story has come to fruition, to the extent that it has, depending on how well your movie is written. And, you know, usually there's going to be some big swelling piece of score at the end, and that's fine. But in the end credits, there's an opportunity for the composer to kind of sum everything up and take the elements of musical storytelling from the film should they be there, if it's a well-written and well-executed score, and kind of make a final statement. That's one thing that this score really does, because right at the end of this movie, you have Spock reading the intro from the main title of the original series, and you have the return of that Alexander Courage fanfare, and it goes into a version of that fanfare with the main theme slash Kirk's theme, whatever you want to call it, in counterpoint as Spock is finishing that monologue. And then, for the end credits, it launches into the original series theme, as if to say, all the pieces are together, if this is an origin story, we have their origin, everyone is there on the ship and they're going off on a mission, You know, Kirk has earned his uniform, he finally has the full uniform, and the movie, as an entity, has earned the original series theme. It's almost like a restoration.
0: And it's really interesting, because really, other than, you know, a brief quote of one small piece here and there, this is the first time any of the movies actually use that original series theme. I mean, it's quoted, you know, there's a little piece of it in Star Trek 1 and there's like a moment of it in Star Trek 4, but it's really not used at all. And all of a sudden, here it is, played through its entire length, three different times,
2: giant, big, bold rendition of the whole theme. And when you say the whole theme, you mean the whole thing. Gikino really uses every part of the animal here. I mean, even the little fanfare for the end of the theme to go to commercial is used at the end of a reading of the theme. Like, he might as well have thrown in the Desilu fanfare. He really is using everything. Yeah, that's the only part he didn't
0: use. (laughs) And I think it's interesting to look at that because that theme really fits in this movie. This movie has a lot of touches trying to attach it back to the rest of Star Trek. Where none of the other movies went to that extent. Because they all had William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy and DeForest Kelly and all the rest. They didn't need to go to extra effort to try to connect themselves back to Star Trek. This movie is the one that has to go to extra effort to connect itself back to Star Trek. So they use the same transporter sound from the original series. And they use some bridge sounds from the original series. and, And they have this big, bold... Rendition of the main title theme from the original series. And they go so far as to bring Leonard Nimoy out of retirement and make the entire rebooted Star Trek actually an alternate timeline of the original. They go to all these lengths to try to attach themselves to the rest of Star Trek in a way that none of the other movies
2: had to because they had the people from Star Trek. And I really love some of the transpositions and adjustments that Giacchino makes to that theme in lieu of the solo soprano from the second season version of the theme there is the full choir that has been used throughout the score kind of joyfully reciting this theme as sort of a chorus between the two verses of the theme there is a rendition of a piece of the original series theme in counterpoint with Kirk's theme again and I just I just love the combination of those two themes it's a wonderful wonderful counterpoint there and then after this restoration that you feel of the original series theme Jikino transitions into Spock's theme first in its more typical arrangement on the erhu And then after that, like you say, in an action variant that isn't heard anywhere else in the score. There is Nero's theme in there, as you've heard it previously in the score. In fact, I believe they tracked the end credits version into the score at one point.
0: Yeah, for for when they deploy
2: the Red Matter over Vulcan. And then back to Kirk's theme, to kind of sum it up as the main theme of the movie... But he also gives Kirk's theme a B melody that isn't heard anywhere else in the score, kind of an extension of the melody. And then, of course, wraps it up with a little more of the Alexander Courage fanfare right at the end, before laying in a little more of that bombastic brass as kind of his signature right on the end. It's such a well-constructed end credits piece I think it sums up the score beautifully. I think it sums up the movie really, really well. Wouldn't you agree?
0: It does work in all of the various themes that G. wrote for this movie. All of the four major themes that he wrote. As opposed to earlier scores where the end credits sequence is a theme from a movie from 15 years earlier... And then a small interlude of a couple of minutes of a theme written for that movie. And then a return to the theme from a movie from 15 years earlier. This movie actually has enough material written for this movie that you can put together an entire end credit sequence of just material
2: written for this movie. I don't think you can fault the Goldsmith and credits structure. Again, we're going into frickin' Goldsmith. I don't think you can fault the Goldsmith and credits structure because that's just... not even unique to him. That's the Star Wars end credits structure. That's the Generations end credits structure. That's... What? You're entirely wrong about
0: that. The Star Wars end credits structure and the Generations end credit structure is to use the main theme of the movie as the bookend, and then use other themes in between. The Goldsmith end credit structure is to use the main theme of a movie from 15 to 20 years earlier. If he used that TNG theme as the main title to the TNG movie and then used it throughout the TNG movie as the main theme of the TNG movie and then used it in the end credits, that would be the Star Wars structure. But it's not. It's like if you had the same end credits on The Force Awakens, except that that was the first time you heard Luke's theme since A New Hope's main title.
2: Let's get off of Goldsmith. You know, let's, let's let the man rest. <laughs> let's hit just a few more notes on this score. I remember before the movie came out, there was a preview track put up on the movie's official site, and that turned out to be on the CD, the track, Hella Bar Talk, which is a punny pun which covered the end of Kirk's conversation with Pike in the bar and then his motorcycle ride to see the Enterprise and all that.
0: So like one of those slower, more contemplative renditions of the main theme.
2: Yes. And I remember going to the site to listen to that piece at a time when the message board that I had been notified about it on wasn't really sure if that was from the score or just something they pasted onto the website. You what, know it is
0: like a practical joke?
2: No, it's just a piece of production music to put on the site so there was something there. It, like, you know, played in the background while you were reading the site. People weren't sure if that was score uh-huh. from the movie or just, you know, temporary music that they put in to have something. And I remember I was kind of nonplussed about it at first. Hearing the theme first in that more contemplative arrangement, I wasn't quite so sure about it. I remember turning around a little bit when I was listening to the CD before the movie came out, and then when I saw the movie, I was really, really impressed with a lot of what Gikino had done. What were your first impressions of this score? When this movie came out and this score came out, did you take to it immediately? Yeah, pretty much. It's hard to listen
0: to scores when you haven't heard the movie because you don't know really how to judge it. All you're judging it on is a listening experience. You don't know if it actually works as a movie score. But this score, like I said earlier, this is exactly what a movie score is supposed to fucking be. So even just listening to it without knowing what the movie was going to be... I could pick out the various themes and their uses and their developments and their uses in different ways and the way they, just, they play off of each other. That was immediately apparent even before watching the movie. Maybe you don't know what each theme necessarily means, but you don't need to sit through the movie in order to pick out the main theme, you know? The Romulan slash Nero theme is not a piece of music you don't notice unless you've seen the film. <laughs> So, pretty much as soon as I listened to it, I was a big fan of the music, at least. It's, it was actually kind of funny, because there's, there's a point in the climactic battle. We we're sitting at the theater on opening night, and they're reaching the point in the battle where, you know, the odds were against them, and the situation was grim. And I, rem- I recognized the music that was playing, and I knew, hey, wait a minute. In about 15 seconds, there's a really bold, heroic version of the main theme. I think the Enterprise is about to show up and save the day. And what did you know at 15 seconds later, soon when the Enterprise shows up to save the day?
2: <laughs> Sometimes there's a moment in a score where the music kind of pauses for a second. Like, between the build-up and a fanfare it kind of drops out a little bit so that when the fanfare comes blaring back in, it's contrasted by, like, just a split second of silence. I believe in music terminology, it's called a rest. A technical term? (laughs) Yeah, sure. (laughs) There's one in Star Trek VI where there's a lot of build-up and then fire right when they find Chang's ship at the end. And that's another one of those moments where there's a lot of buildup, there's a lot of tension, and then, sir, we're picking up another ship! And the fanfare comes in and the Enterprise flies in.
0: Yeah.
2: You know, there are those moments where you're listening to the score and kind of, like, inserting that line in, in the rest <laughs> in the music. It's kind of singing
0: along with a with a rock song, it's quoting the movie lines along with the score.
2: Yeah. Even though in the movie they used a different performance of the fanfare than they have on the CD.
0: Yeah.
2: But nonetheless. There's also an incredible moment in the final battle when the Narada is getting sucked into the wormhole. And for a moment, like, the whole orchestra drops out and the choir recites the main theme, acapella. And it's this fantastic moment that, again, really stands in contrast to... A lot of the brass and the full orchestral might going on all around it. And I kind of latched onto that moment. Of course, it was completely editorially created. They just dialed out the orchestra for a second. And in fact, looped the sequence. Because right after that, they play that piece of the track again with the full orchestra behind the choir. But... That little moment was just so distinctive. I just latched onto that little bit. Is there anything else we have to cover? Do you want to talk about Disc 2, Track 7? Do you want to go back into that? Hey.
0: One thing I did notice, because there was one when they released the complete version of the score, which you're now telling me isn't quite complete, which turns out like nearly everything called a complete score is not quite complete.
2: Well, there were some parts of the score that would've required some more fees to be paid. There are some choral parts that are not included on the Deluxe Edition because they would've had to pay the choir singers more. Whereas they had already fully licensed the choir for all of the tracks that were on the first CD release. So those are on the Deluxe Edition with choir, but there are several tracks on the Deluxe Edition that don't have it. There are also tracks that are missing synth or drum machine overlays that were done by uh, Chris Tilton, a assistant composer who works on a lot of Gikino's scores. There are also places where a-, a couple of tracks are a little weird, like the alternate main title and some of those things, but there has been much Storm on on message boards about this for several years. But anyway... Disc 2, track 7 of the complete
0: version, is the track from where the Enterprise drops out of warp, sort of in the clouds of Titan. And that track has really good music in it. It has, like, the Enterprise theme in the beginning, and it transitions into the main theme of the film as the Enterprise sort of slowly rises up out of the gas. It's a really arresting visual... And the musical underlay is really excellent as well. And so that was one piece of music I was really excited to finally get to hear when they came out with the two CD version. And I went back and looked at it recently. Again, as sort of a... In order to be able to draw a comparison. That brief moment where the Enterprise drops out of warp and rises up out of the planet. And then they're ready to go attack the Romulan ship now. It's a short little sequence. It's about... 45 seconds or so. Which makes it at least twice as long as any piece of music that was any good in a Goldsmith score. And yet it's this short little nothing piece of music compared to the rest of the
2: score of this score. I can't believe it. <laughs> I can't believe I asked you for any other notes to cover on the score before we moved on. And you had to bag on Goldsmith again.
0: You're the one that asked me if I wanted to talk about this two-track seven. I see now that I've been a fool all this time. We've been talking about nothing but crap for three episodes. We finally have a decent score. I am going to celebrate it. This might be the best Star Trek score. Although darkness is... hmm,
2: Darkness is very good, too. We'll get there. We will indeed. But for now, let's wrap up this show. And I I really think that if Star Trek came back, Dianu. If it was actually good, Dianu. If it was also popular, Dianu. But Star Trek is back. It's actually good. People actually like it, and it has this great score. It has so many things coming together. That are actually good, which is a feeling that we hadn't had about Star Trek in some time. About ten years. (laughs) Give or take. And so, I think we can leave off with that very good feeling. And that will do it for our discussion of this score for this movie. Thank you very much, listeners, for being with us for this supplemental episode. I didn't call it a supplemental in the beginning, did I? No. Oh, well. Thank you very much, listeners, for being with us on this supplemental episode. Thank you, Scott, for being here on this supplemental episode. Listeners, if you would like to get in touch with us, I am available on the internet at glenniburn on the Tumblr and the Twitter. You can also email me, if you like, g-l-e-n-n-b at placetobination.com. We are looking for questions, comments, suggestions for a Star Trek-centered mailbag episode of the Old Spectacular that can be about any part of the franchise, not just the movies as we've been discussing, but anything that you want to ask us or generally hear our opinion on. You can contact me anywhere on the internet for that, or comment on the Be Nation Facebook page, the posts for this episode. Reach out and touch us. We like to be touched. Except you, Scott, don't like to be touched on the internet at all, do you? I am
0: not currently participating in social media.
2: That's like your rank and serial number version of the answer to that question, right? You keep asking me the same question on every episode.
0: Yes. Well, it's it's how you end a podcast. By repeatedly asking me a question that I've already answered 20 times? That's what we do here on our podcast.
2: Thank you, listeners. We will be back soon with another hot episode. Thank you and good night. You don't have anything to say when you're not slagging on Goldsmith?
0: Much easier to destroy than to create.